Okay, let's open up with a word of prayer, if we could, please. Our Father, we do come before you this morning in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, giving great praise and honor and glory to your name, for you clearly deserve such worship. Lord, we thank you for the church and the opportunity we have to come together as fellow believers. We thank you for the body of Christ and the edification and the strength that we gain from one another. Lord, thank you for this place and the privilege to open your word and to study it. Lord, we ask that you would give us a clear understanding by your spirit, illumine our minds and show us the truth. Lord, help us to proclaim the gospel as we go from this place. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is our week number three in our study of eschatology, and we'll finish up our introduction today and then go in a direction that I would like to take us to start with to kind of frame what we're thinking about. And we spent a couple of weeks talking about things that we don't believe, things that we don't hold to, because you have to make distinctions. Um, There are other true believers who believe differently than we do. They love the Lord, they study the scriptures, they just come to different conclusions um, based on the way they interpret the scriptures. And the the most prominent um, belief or doctrines that are held are those known as covenantalism. And covenantalism... Um, looks at several different things. We've talked about these. They believe that the second coming of Jesus Christ was fulfilled in 70 AD. And as such, we're now living in the millennium that Satan has been bound so that he's not able to influence the nations for evil. Um, You just think about that, right? But that's what they believe. Um, They're what we would call amillennial in that they don't believe that the millennium is a a literal thousand-year reign as we do. They would be known as preterist. And anybody who believes that Jesus' second coming was in 70 AD is preterist. That's their belief. That's what that doctrine is called. And so you'll hear all these different terms that are thrown around, um, but the overarching uh, doctrine would be known as covenantalism. And uh, you remember that they arrive at this doctrine, set of doctrines, by two main principles. One is their hermeneutic, the way that they interpret the scriptures. They take some scriptures as literal, they take many scriptures as allegorical, and they switch between the two sometimes in mid-verse, and how they know when to switch and um, really, I believe, is driven by their system of doctrine. Um, They would say it's contextual. Um, I just can't get there. But um, that's what they honestly, truly believe. And then the other set of um, rules for biblical interpretation is the priority of the New Testament over the Old Testament. That anything that the New Testament, uh, when it quotes from the Old Testament, when it speaks to the same principles, 
that the New Testament reinterprets what was said in the Old Testament. What was written in the Old Testament um, was not necessarily to the person that it was given to or to the set of people that it was given to, but it was simply to be reinterpreted later as the New Testament was written. We, we have no priority in our understanding of the Scriptures that each passage was written um, for a specific purpose to a specific group of people. Sometimes it certainly foreshadowed what would come later, but when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it never reinterprets it, but rather um, gives more light, expands it, um, gives more understanding to it. Um, but the, new, the, the Old Testament stands on what was written there, um, is what we believe. So this, uh, the hermeneutic and the reinterpretation of the Old Testament by the New Testament is what drives them toward some of these beliefs. And the same thing is true for us. Our hermeneutic drives us toward some of our conclusions. The way that you approach the Scriptures will ultimately set your doctrine. And so you have to decide which, which route you're going to go. Um, there are other belief systems that also um, we would not agree with. Um, the post-millennial view, which is the view that Jesus Christ comes at the end of the millennium, um, again, the millennium not being a true thousand years. I don't know why they use that term if they don't mean a thousand years, but they just say that it means a long time and that the responsibility of believers is to basically um, convert everybody on the planet. And as they do that, then uh, not only in a religious way, but in a societal way, in a political way, in an economical way, that the world will become more blissful and more righteous and that ultimately we'll get to such a point that we'll usher in the reign of Christ. Um, you know, you look at the world and is it getting better or is it getting worse? Um, you know, I guess most Americans' viewpoint is that it's getting worse. Um, so, uh, or I guess... Some Americans believe it's getting worse. Some think we're on the right track. But, um, yeah, we're off the tracks, but nevertheless. Uh, yeah. Someone pulled up the tracks. Uh, yes. Yeah. At its earliest moment, as the means by which we could now truly practice our faith. Right. And and that was was in large part believed to be the ushering in of this time at which the world would now be converted by the church. So it was a genuine desire, a, sure. a godly desire that has just really gone off the rail in tradition because history just. Yeah, and if you if you ever take the time to study the theology of the Founding Fathers, you'll be sorely disappointed. Um, because most of them were deist, believing that God round, wound the world up and just kind of left it on its own. Um, 
I mean, some of our founding fathers would take the scriptures and they'd cut out the parts they didn't like and then use what was left. I mean, that was a common practice. Um, so if, there's a great book on that. I can't remember the title of it. Founding the beliefs of, or the religious beliefs of the founding fathers. Right yeah, and that book is uh, startling if you, if you read it. I mean, it really is. Um, when you understand what the founding fathers actually believed. And you can see it in the documents that they wrote. Um, personal notes. Yes. The public message was one thing, but the right. personal notes told the truth. Right, right. And some of the guys that you greatly respect, will your respect will diminish a little bit <laughs> if you read that book. Um, because it's taken from their notes. It's not like someone was just writing what they thought these guys believed. It's taken directly from their notes. Maybe. Yeah. Not in spite of that, but there's a separate points. Someone has calculated, and I did not verify. <laughs> 34% of the basis of the thoughts that went into writing the Constitution were based on Scripture. 9% were based on Count Montesquieu, where mm-hmm. he got the idea of three powers. Three governments, right? And, uh, and then it goes on down from there. But you know, uh, Lord can use <laughs> unbelievers. <laughs> right. To, I mean, truth is truth. Even unbelievers recognize some truth. And so, but there is some biblical basis. This is not the new right. kingdom. But it, it's better than. Yeah, right. there, there's no doubt about that. And then, there, apart from what was written, comes practice, which, you know, we continue to try and work at. That's why it's called practice, right? You never get it right. Um, and then interpretation of what those guys wrote. So uh, we go on and on. And uh, from my perspective, it's not getting better. It's getting worse, which is, you know, of course, Jesus' analogy of the world was of a woman giving birth, right? And the birth, he spoke of it as birth pangs. And birth pangs, ladies, don't get better, right? They get worse until you get to the birth, and then everything's good. But on the way there... It's, um, they get more intense and more intense and more intense. And that's the way Christ described um, the end times. Um, that's his analogy, not mine. So we should expect it to get worse um, based upon what he said. Um, so there, there are a lot of other beliefs. And so what I'd like to do is talk about what Canton Bible Church holds to. And if you just simply grab our doctrinal statement and read through it, it's crystal clear what we hold to. And we put it in there for a specific reason, so that people would know what to expect to hear the elders of Canton Bible Church teach. Um, that's why it's there and what we believe is true. So um, we, we use a hermeneutic that would be described as literal, grammatical, historical meaning the scriptures most often mean exactly what they say. There's not some hidden meaning down deep that they are written with language to communicate truths, the truths of God to people. So most, a lot of times, you can just simply take it for what it says. You don't need to read anything into it or look for a higher meaning. Um, And 
you know, I've been through the book of Revelation with a literal hermeneutic, taking the numbers for what they really mean, and I never ran into a problem where I had any problems. Simply taking the number for what it says. And, um, you know, and that's where people, numerology, and people get all twisted around the axles. Like, just whatever it says, that's what it means. Um, so you, you can most often use that. Now, um, and, and from a historical standpoint, the scriptures most often were written to a group of people. And so you have to somewhat insert yourself, if you want to get at the original meaning, into that hi- historical um, time. And, and, you know, there's a lot of things written in the scripture that are confusing until you realize, oh, the language of the time used this term commonly. And then it becomes more straightforward. Um, and then grammatical simply meaning that we, it, it's written, it's a language that's written to communicate. Now, we have, you know, translations today. And so you always have to be careful to say the original manuscripts were to be understood that way. The more we find, the more we realize that what we have is every time we find an, an older or newer um, uh, copy of the Bible, it, we, we get confirmed, not changed. It just The more we find, the more solid we understand that our scriptures are. Now, you may have an ESV in your hand, or you may have uh, a New American Standard. And, of course, each one of the groups of translators thought they did the best job. Um, you know, they're always improving, but it's probably better to read several. Or if you're able to read something in Greek as opposed to in English, I'm not able to do that, so I use New King James, I use New American Standard, I use uh, the ESV, all to um, try and arrive at the most sound interpretation. And, and I would suggest that you do the same, because there are certain things in the New American Standard that I have to discard and pick up the ESV. But there's some things in the ESV that I have to discard and pick up my New American Standard. And then uh, the New King James is pretty good. It's a, a good and literal translation. And I would suggest that you use one of those three. Uh, when you get into things like the NIV, you get into dynamic equivalents where they, don't, they no longer say this. It's not on their website. But they originally said on their website that the NIV, NIV is where possible, word for word. Where not possible, it's thought for thought. And I just go, whose thoughts? You know, and I mean, that's what they used to say. They, you go to their website today, it doesn't say that. Um, but I remember when it did. Um, so um, you just have to be careful. And so literal, grammatical, historical, hermeneutics, looking to the original manuscripts as much as possible. Okay, and that's where we go. If you go there, then you believe things like when the scripture says that Christ will reign for a thousand years, that it means he will reign for a thousand years, and that's the millennium period. Okay, I mean, and then you, you go back over to First Peter, Second Peter, in chapter three, where he says uh, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day to the Lord. So that's why I interpret the scripture to mean the day of the Lord 
is when Christ comes again and reigns for a thousand years. That's all the same day from God's perspective. And I believe the scriptures teach that. That some of the things that happen at the very beginning of Christ's reign are called the day of the Lord. And some that happen during and at the end of his reign are called the day of the Lord. And so it's that thousand year period where Christ comes to reign again. And so um, people categorize these belief systems, such as you heard me say, covenantalism, where we would be put in a camp by most people of what is called dispensational. Okay? Now, um, you have to make distinctions within the dispensational belief system. Okay? Um, There's something known as historical dispensationalism. There's something known as revised dispensationalism there's something known as progressive dispensationalism and we don't hold hard and fast to any of those so we're we do hold some dispensational thoughts but not all of them dispensationalism in the 1800s was really organized by a man named Darby he was the first guy who began to put forth dispensational theology. Before that time, it was mainly covenantal, and certainly um, the reformers were amillennial, believing that they would usher in the reign of Christ, that they, this new, you know, the new discovery of truth would change the world, and that Christ would come as more and more people were converted to this system of belief. They honestly believed that. That's what they held to, So they didn't deal a whole lot with the book of Revelation. You'll find a little bit, but not much, that they did in the book of Revelation. Um, So, But in the 1800s, Darby organized this thought of dispensationalism. And coming behind him was a name that probably is more familiar to you, is Schofield. And Schofield agreed with Darby, but he did something that was unusual for the times. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, Schofield wrote, and he published a Bible that was one of the first study Bibles, because it, it, beside the Scripture, he published his interpretations of what the Scripture meant. And so that became a very popular Bible. Um, a lot of people uh, read what he said. And so that would be um, Darby and Schofield believed in what is known as dispensations. Periods of time marked out by God in which God communicated and expected different things of people. Man's responsibility was different in these different dispensations. And there are seven of them. Um, they start out with Adam in the garden when, before he fell, called Innocence. And then they, I'll have to read these because I don't have them memorized because I don't hold to these. And Canton Bible Church doesn't hold to them. But you have uh, Innocence, Conscience, Patriarchal Rule, which would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, And then the Mosaic Law, which was um, from Moses all the way up until when Christ came. And then you have the dispensation of grace, which would be the church. And then you have um, the millennial reign. 
So dispensationalism clearly believes in the millennial reign. But this division of times marked out by God in which he expected different things from the people to whom he was communicating, um, we don't hold to that. That sees history as not continuous. It's disjointed. And it's disjointed by the plan of God. Things change and God expects different things from his people. Um, so the responsibility of man changes. And we don't believe that. Um, we, we see history as continuous. And we see revelation as progressive. Meaning God does give greater light the further you go in scripture. But not that it's disjoint in any way. But that it's orchestrated by God underneath his sovereign great plan. And so history moves on and things do change, but not so much that God expects something different from different groups of people and that people are saved in different ways and, and people go all kinds of crazy places when you start believing that. Um, these guys would, you know, up on the wall, they would have some very complex charts and timelines and dates and this scripture looks back to this one and means this. And we, we're dispensational, but we don't hold to that. We don't hold to historical dispensational thoughts. Okay? And so why are we called dispensationalists then? Because we would be labeled um, as dispensationalists. You, you just need to understand that. If, you're gonna, if people are going to put you in a category, that's where they're going to put you. And, you know, we would rather say that we're biblical. Well, you have to be careful with that because all the people who owe to covenantalism would say they're biblical also. And that becomes something that it sounds arrogant. And so it's best just to say what you believe and leave it at that. Um, Andy, you want to say something? Well, I was curious if you or John David or David looked at the relationship between those prominent, distant, really the ones that systematized this their relationship, their thinking, and their experience of both the Great Awakening right. and the Second Great Awakening and how deeply that influenced this kind of event-driven, epochal right. view. I mean, that had to be, if you read the revivals carefully at the faithful pastors that were witnessing that thing, it was, it still, when I read it, it's like, it's just almost unbelievable when they describe what was happening at yeah, because, I mean, it's called the Awakening and the Great Awakening for a reason. There were scores of people won to Christianity. And you're just like, you know, we've never experienced anything like that, okay? We have not seen it. But they saw it, and they were living through it. And so that does influence you, just like the events of today clearly influence what I believe about the end times. I mean, you're, you're, the point of history that you're in does influence you. And a lot of these guys who were post-millennial, when we had the 1900s and you have World War I and World War II, it's kind of like, is this getting better? And no. And so that, you know, takes some shots there to what they believe. Um, that's why I think the world's getting worse and will continue to get worse and, and degrade uh, even thermodynamics says that the, everything moves to the lowest state. Um, so the natural laws say the same thing. 
So you, you would be called a dispensationalist if you went out and began to teach or read our doctrinal statement in public. And, and the main reason, and we, we, we hold these, okay, we would not discard these, is first our hermeneutic, which is literal, grammatical, historical. Um, that drives you to believe certain things. It drives you to believe in the millennium, which we hold to. It will ultimately drive you to premillennial millennial rapture if you believe, you know, if you take things literally. So you'll believe in that. That's a small slice of, of the Christian world today that believe in premillennial rapture of the church. And then it also will, and this is the biggest one, it will cause you to make a distinction between the nation of Israel and the church. That they are not the same entities. They are separate entities in the sovereign plan of God. Israel still exists, not so much as a nation that we see today, but as a people. And that ultimately they are involved in the plan of God at the end of the age. The covenantal would say um, Jewish history has nothing to do with what God is now doing that it never did because they've reinterpreted those promises and that it's insignificant in the scheme and plans of God. Now, we do, we do not hold to that. We believe in the nation of Israel that the promises that were given to Israel are Israel's and not the church's, and that they will ultimately be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. As John David preached, Jesus Christ coming as the ultimate Israelite and leading his nation, literally sitting on the throne of his ancestors, that being David. And, and, and he will reign there with a rod of iron, so the world is not all good and everybody's believers um, but he reigns with a rod of iron and for a purpose and that's to discipline those who would not honor him and the nations they will whether they believe or not will parade before him and they will give him honor because he is the ruler of the world and, um, and the Israelites are involved in that okay so um, and that's very distinctive. That is where those, those really three or four tenets is what puts us in the dispensationalist camp. All the other things of dispensationalism, we pretty much discard. Um, we, we don't hold to those. We don't interpret Scripture that way. We don't look at history that way. Um, we certainly understand the New Covenant and that began with Pentecost and that the church was created there. And we agree with all that, but we don't see that as a separate dispensation from what was going on before that time. It's just continuous history and God giving revelation as he desired throughout that history, um, not disjointed, not specific periods set off by God. So, there, there are two things, David, with the treatment of Israel that are quite stunning if you really carefully examine the historical response. One, 
the elimination of Israel emasculates everything that Christ is going to lift up as beautiful. The Feast of the Booths resumed, yeah. the Passover resumed, Israel is All that's gone. Right, that's all obliterated, which is precious to God. But then, more horrifically, if that is true about the people of Israel, then the anti-Semitism that has been exhibited over the course of time since Christ and before it is, is, is affirmed. Right, is, is condoned. And that's where it's born out of, right? right? The Jews that killed Jesus. Right. As if we were somehow righteous and they weren't. Right. That's, yeah, and, and I mean, much of history is involved in that. Um, not just um, the world wars, but way back before that. I mean, you go back to 70 AD when not the Romans, I believe, they certainly led the charge, but it was mostly um, Syrians who destroyed Jerusalem, uh, not so much Roman citizens. Um, and we'll talk about that one day down the road. Um, we'll talk about that for several weeks, actually, one day down the road. Um, but... It, this thought about Israel, you know, in, in the Millennial Kingdom that's described in Ezekiel, there are burnt offerings and sacrifices to Jesus Christ during His reign on the earth. And you're like, why would they be doing that? Because that all pointed to Jesus Christ. No, in that time, it points back to Jesus Christ and honors His sacrifice. So yeah, they they have Israel has burnt offerings and sacrifices during the millennial kingdom. It's very crystal clear, and that God ordains it and and actually commands it, and because it honors the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made. Go ahead, David. As far as the dispensation goes, is it is the problem mainly with the distinction of how God dealt with people and what people's yeah, the milestones of history are milestones of history, but the way, not only how God dealt with them, but what their responsibility to God was, was also different in each dispensation. So and you, God, and God was satisfied with different things at different times. Yes, and, and you know, I, I can understand what they say. It's just not the way I view history. Just like I understand what the covenantal beliefs are. It's just not the way that I believe that the scriptures are to be interpreted. I, I mean, it's logical. It's you know not hard to understand, but you just have to decide: is that what I believe? Do, or, do, they, do they end up having a salvation by works at some point? Who's that? Dispensation that you're talking about. No, I wouldn't say that any dispensationalist or even covenantal believe in salvation by works. They don't. They believe in true faith. But they just see it differently than we do. Well, there's one example, and I don't really know where he's at today, but, but there's a term called transdispensationalism. Right. Which, which literally believes that God is still saving individuals based on those dispensations right now. So right. he's taking all the different ways he's saved people. So that's one of the dangers of where that thought well, process goes. Yeah, because that's people, people who hold to that would say that a Jewish man today can be saved in a different way than a New Testament Christian can. By works, which they never were saved from to begin with. Right. So there you see the fallacy. Right, but they believe that. They honestly believe there's a um, Indiana Jones, right, and all the, the original Indiana Jones. That is based on a man. 
a guy named Vendel Jones, um, and at least the original ones were. And uh, I mean, he was an archaeologist. He went into Israel. He discovered a lot of things. Um, and I heard him speak one time, and he's married to a Jewish woman. Well, he believed that he was saved one way and she was saved a different way. He honestly believed that, and that's what he proclaimed. So my pastor had to come the next week and correct all that, but um, that's what he believed. She's Jewish, she's saved in a different way than a Christian is saved. Yeah, he wants to, yeah, and I want to believe she's saved, but that doesn't mean I'm going to change my beliefs about how someone's saved. Um, as long as you're convicted and committed to the Scriptures. Right, right. Not the emotions that naturally. Right, and that's why literal, grammatical, historical, hermeneutic drives you back to the Scriptures, drives you to these interpretations, that the Scripture means what it says, and it was written to a specific group of people and meant something to them. And so what I want to do, one of the biggest disjoints when you start talking about covenantal, dispensational in Israel is the issue of land. Did God promise a land to Israel? And if he did, did they ever inhabit the land and control it? And so that's a big issue. Because they'll say, I never meant anything. God didn't ever promise a particular land. That's not what he meant when he said that because the New Testament reinterprets that. And so I want to walk through the land. And of course, it's no big deal in the Middle East today, is it? No, no. The Middle East is... You know, that's why I have a real problem, and you may believe this, and I'm not knocking you, with that the Antichrist and all that happens is centered in Europe at the end of the age, that just makes no sense. Because it's always been centered in the Middle East. Always. And, um, you know, I mean, even the Crusades, it was, yeah, there were Europeans involved, but it was about Jerusalem and who controlled Jerusalem. So I just, I just can't get there with um, that the Antichrist comes out of the seven hills of Rome and all of that. I don't go there. And you'll see that as, as we go through this, because I don't think the scriptures anywhere say that. Matter of fact, I think they say something very different. And I'll show you why I believe that later. David? Yeah. I'd like to make two hopefully edifying comments. One on the hermeneutic. Uh, unfortunately, we're in a time of pollution of, of truth in that hermeneutics professing believers' thoughts. Sure. So now you have to add another adjective to literal, <laughs> grammatical, historical. You have to put something in there called consistent. <laughs> yeah. Because even B.B. Warfield. Right. But they had a, they had a two-speed transmission. <laughs> if they didn't like what it said, they went into the allegorical method. And, right. and that includes Calvin and everybody else. Right. And let me be clear. Because we have a literal hermeneutic, we still believe that the Bible has poetry in it. We still believe it has um, allegory in it. We still believe that it has um, one... Th- symbolism. Yes, well, symbolism for sure, um, but analogies exist in the Scripture. And we also still believe, and I told you this last week, we believe in types 
that there are many types in Scripture, such as Adam in his innocent creation was a type of, that the Scripture says leads to Jesus Christ. He was. And so, of course, Jesus Christ being distinctly different, but nevertheless, he, he was a type. And yeah, I even believe that the, uh, Israel was a type of the people of God, not of all true believers, but of the people of God. Because today, the people of God would include believing Jews and believing anybody else would be the church. And so it was a type. And whereas Israel was given uh, precious promises that weren't given to the rest of the world, same is true for true believers today. So there are types and symbolism and allegory and poetry. All those exist. But you come, as you said, with a consistent hermeneutic that recognizes those things. Okay, and you'll see that as we go through this, that you, it's not hard to make those distinctions. The second Greek point is, since you mentioned progressive dispensationalism, this is a rather new, well, in the last 20, 30 years anyway, and its progenitors fell at Dallas Seminary, which has gone off the deep end, like virtually all seminaries, including West Coast states. But the... Darrell Locke and Craig Blazer. Right. And they promote this idea of already not yet. Right. This is, I mean, Christ, you know, it's a bunch of nonsense, but they're trying to merge all millennialism and dispensationalism, and it's a disaster. Right, it's trying to, and most people, as I've talked about these things, are not purist. They take some from here and some from there. But people categorizing them and put them in camps. And that's what progressive dispensationalism is. It's trying to grab some of the things of covenantalism and some of the things of dispensational and harmonize them. And it simply can't be done. And it's not what the scriptures teach. And there are certain names, like if you hear Block and Blazing, they're some of the, the most prominent writers. If you talk about um, revised... Um, dispensationalism, you'll hear the name Ryrie most often because he did hold to a little different belief. He came along in the 1950s. Uh, my first study Bible was a Ryrie study Bible. He wrote some really good things um, that I hold to, but he wrote some that I don't hold to also. So um, let's, let's just introduce this subject of land and then we'll stop. Okay, and what we're going to go all the way back to Genesis in chapter 12 of Genesis, the first time where God said to Abram, before his name was changed to Abraham, about a land. This is the first mention of a specific land. And you'll see in Genesis chapter 12, beginning down in verse 5. Um, Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moriah, 
Now the Canaanite was in the land. Okay, so it wasn't their land. It was the Canaanite's land. Then here's the promise. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Okay, so what land specifically, Lord? Well, you go down a couple of verses. And in verse, um, I thought I had it here. Yeah, verse 5. I read that, right? Oh, sorry. I read the second part first. So go back to verse 1. Abram said to the Lord, Go forth from your company, country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. So there was a specific land that God wanted to lead Abraham to. And then we saw down lower that that land was the land of Canaan where the Canaanites dwelt. Now, it'll get more specific from here. This is just God's first mention to Abram of where he wants him to go and I'll show it to you. So you know when you get there. Just start out. And so Abram did with all his possessions and he comes to the land of Canaan and goes to Shechem. Okay? So you see there is a land and do you think Abram thought, well, God really isn't going to lead me to a land, a literal land? He never would have moved, right? I mean, he knew, and God was speaking to Abram, that that meant something to Abram. And there was a specific land that God was going to lead him to, and that's the land of the Canaanites. There's that little passage from Abraham that says he believed God. Right, that's later. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Right, that's a little later. Um, We'll get there. Um, So I want to walk through. So that's the first mention. But there are multitudes of mentions. And then we're going to walk through them in the book of Genesis. And ultimately, you have to go through the argument. Did God promise to Isaac and to Jacob the same thing that he promised to Abram? So you have to determine that, right? We will. And we'll see the specific promises of that, of, uh, of multiple things to both Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're repeated. But I want you to see it in Scripture because then we're going to go to Joshua where theoretically they took all the land. But I want to show you what first God told Joshua in Deuteronomy and then what Joshua said on his deathbed. And you'll see very clearly about this plan of land and what God has done and what he has not done and I want you to see that in scripture because when you get to Ezekiel and you start talking about land this is what it's referring to and so you got to have a foundation of what the land is and what happened there and what did not happen there otherwise you get uh, some people can lead you astray And so this is the best way to do it, is to see what the Scripture says and what God promised. So that's where we're going next time. And we'll walk through each of these passages. Any final question or comment you want to make? Go ahead, Jackie. all that in your 
there certain truths about God that if you don't let yourself stray from that, like God made a promise he's going to keep it. Right. Therefore, why are we saying the land isn't Israel's? Or not us, but you know, if you drift often into something that like Israel no longer exists when God made clear promises. So, right. And whatever he's made promises about, all his promises, of course, as long as you don't let yourself stray from them. I can't, like if I'm reading a passage and I'm like, well, maybe this is how it's interpreted, but no, that strays from who and what God is and his character and his promises. Right, but that, that's, that's the danger of the priority of scriptures that the New Testament reinterprets what God said to Abraham. God never changed. <laughs> right. And what he expects from men really hasn't changed. No, no, it never, right. That's why we don't hold to the periods of time quite that tightly. Yeah. I think it's interesting. Well, first of all, I said Greg Harris on the religious, it's Greg Frazier. Um, yes. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. So there is a longing to understand all these things that you're teaching us. Right. About, right? Natural law. But then he says that yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. <laughs> and, and even for us where scripture does scripture remains silent on certain things. things, yeah. We have this natural desire to fill in the blank. Right. And that dumps us right. It kicks Christ out of his throne and drops us into his throne. Yeah, and there's some things that I'm sorry, we're not going to settle for you. Okay, I mean there are, but not, but God has revealed much, much, and so we have plenty to think about. Okay, thanks for your time.